Good afternoon. Welcome to Business Buzz. I'm Harold Littlejohn, CPA, here on another lovely Chico spring afternoon. Looks like the children are back in school for the rest of this year, I guess. Maybe they're done for the summer. Honestly, without having a small child in the system anymore, I just don't know those don't know those calendars. But I have noticed less traffic near the schools that I drive by every day. So maybe they graduated along with the Chico State graduation, which is which is great. I guess they do end in May. When I was in school a long time ago down in the Bay Area, we were always sep- start in September, end in June. But I know up here it's kind of start in August, end in May. So I know it's a little different, but. My main thing is I appreciate you spending part of your day listening to Business Buzz. I try to educate and inform. I, I'm i just super busy with tax returns that still need to be finished, so I'm working on those. Never a dull moment in a tax office, but this summer is especially trying for me just because I had some personnel changes and got a little bit behind on some of my clients who would normally get everything finished by April 15. I'm just a little bit behind this year, but it's going okay. Uh, I took care of business to make sure nobody has any real problems and we're getting everything done now. Of course, the businesses that we normally do in the summer, they're the, they usually get extended till September or October and that's nothing's really changed with the, the most of the businesses who are normally on extension. So that, that part's fine. So speaking of taxes, I figured I'd spend a little bit of time talking about the IRS and how they contact people because a lot of people are getting fake calls from someone who claims to be the IRS and they end up asking for someone's bank account information and they try to steal your money, making you think that they're the IRS. And the main thing that you should know is that the IRS will never... The first contact will never be a phone call. The first contact is almost always by the U.S. mail. If you reply to that, it's usually with a phone call to them. Then you usually either set up a meeting or you send in the information they're asking for. But if you ever get a phone call out of the blue from a person who says they're the IRS and you owe them money and you need to give them your bank information, uh, I would first off always assume that that's fake. Because like I say, the IRS always starts 99% of the time that I've seen with a phone call. If they were to start with a visit, like a physical visit to someone's home, I would guess that would be some sort of criminal investigation. And unless you're, you know, some huge problem person with giant tax bills, they're not going to come visit you. So I'm just going to read part of this. It's an article called, uh, it's from cpapracticeadvisor.com. And it's like, knock, knock, who's there? The IRS. Really? And then it says, uh, they've got a web page to educate you. Special new page on irs.gov to help taxpayers determine if a person visiting their home or place of business claiming to be from the IRS is legitimate or an imposter. Uh, With continuing phone scams and in-person scams. Okay, so I guess they're also scamming people in person. The IRS reminds taxpayers that IRS employees do make official, sometimes unannounced visits to taxpayers. One thing that I do recommend clients do is to really think think twice about doing a office in home deduction. If you're legally entitled to one, it's fine. The problem is unless your business is profitable, you're not really going to use those extra deductions hardly at all anyway. They have to be stored up for the future, which can come in handy. But the real drawback of the home office deduction, in my opinion, is that if you ever get selected for an audit, they will visit your home office 
during the audit. And that, to me, is a total intrusion. I think, I mean, I'm not, as a CPA, I know I've, part of my oath or part of my signature when I get my license is that I won't badmouth the IRS. Well, I don't badmouth the IRS, but I will, I will give an opinion. And in my opinion, and in the next segment today, I'm going to get into a little bit of discussion of the history of the income tax. And I've been wanting to talk about this. I've, it, I got reminded of it by an article I was reading. Uh, anyway, that's going to be a little later in the show. But my opinion of the IRS is that, first of all, and after I tell you about the history of the income tax, which I'll talk about in a little while, you'll see why I feel that even though I help people do their taxes, I help them legally pay the lowest taxes possible, of course, but I don't agree with the entire system of the mandatory income tax. They call it voluntary, but if you don't file, they come after you. So it's a real, a real tricky, underhanded situation that got us started on this long road down the income tax. Uh, my main complaint about the income tax is for about 50 years or about 70 years, they never indexed the tax brackets for inflation. So when you had tax brackets back in the 1930s and 40s, nobody making a normal wage, like back then you made, you know, three or 400 a month. Back then you stayed in that low 2% income bracket, which is, you know, at least it's low. The problem is when inflation over the years from the start of the Federal Reserve, and coincidentally the Federal Reserve and the income tax started in the same year. And it was coincidentally the year after that Titanic was sank or sunk. Oh, do you guys know, do you remember the, uh, the brand of coffee that they served on the Titanic? That was Sanka. And so the Titanic sank a year later, we had the federal reserve and the income tax at the start. The income tax was like 1% tax on people making quite a bit of money for the day. I think it was $3,000 income, which would be the equivalent now of about 150. So most people didn't have an issue with the income tax, but as inflation crept up, the tax brackets didn't get raised to cover the inflation like they do now somewhat uh, halfway. They don't, they don't really cover it, but they somewhat do. So right now the average family with a couple of people working at decent jobs, you know, they're in like a 22% federal bracket and a 9% state bracket. And uh, 80 years ago, they would have been in a, like a 2% federal and probably a 1% state if, if the state had started the, I don't remember I don't know when California started income tax. I know they've had it long enough to where when I started in 1980 preparing taxes, they've always had it. But my point is it's a very unfair system that started out with just wealthy people paying a small rate. And now everyone pays all the time. Then in the thirties with the new deal. And that's another article I'm going to be talking about today since it was just Memorial Day uh, yesterday. Since the 30s, not only do we have income tax we have to pay, but now we have to pay Social Security tax and Medicare tax. So if you add those brackets up for a family, you're looking at about 40% total if you have decent income. So that's 40% of your money going out to federal income tax, California income tax, Social Security tax, and Medicare. Well, that's, that's definitely not what they, what they told us back in 1913 when the income tax started, but that's how it's morphed into what it is today. I disagree with that, and uh, I, I especially disagree with the way the money gets spent without any uh, audits and no, uh, no oversight. Uh, I told you about the Federal Reserve sending trillions of dollars to foreign banks in 08 and 09, and it took them about six years to even get to the point of having to tell Congress who, you know, Congress is our, that's our representative in Washington. It took them five or six years to well, where they were forced to tell Congress 
who got that money. And it turns out, uh, you know, trillions of dollars that raised our debt level and basically bankrupted this country went to foreign banks. Um, I, I disagree with 99% of this stuff. But, you know, whatever. I, I have my right, my own opinion, so I do, I do express it. But anyway, so I recommend, unless the home office is really helping you, if you're, if you're a possible audit target, I just wouldn't even claim the home office because you really don't need IRS agents coming to your house. That's just a, that's just a general rule. Not that you have anything to hide, but why should you have anything to hide? That's your home. You have the right to remain, you know, right against uh, ir- ir- unreasonable searches and seizures. And uh, that would definitely be one, in my opinion. Okay, let me just see what else this article says. Well, the main thing, the main thing to remember is if the IRS ever calls you, it's probably not really the IRS because you would have got a letter first. Now, if you're someone who hasn't filed and you've moved multiple times and they can't get you, can't get a letter to the, that, to the correct address that you'll receive, well, then in that case, I mean, sure, it's theoretically possible you could get a call from the IRS, but that would only be after you've, like had multiple uh, letters and mail, certified mail, that never arrived at your at your correct address. So that is one good thing is when you do file your taxes, make sure you always give them your your correct address on your tax return, because when you file it, they will update your file, and if they do need to mail you something, you definitely want to you definitely want to receive that first letter. Because the first letter is not that bad. It's just like, hey, here's something we found and uh, you need to correct something or whatever. And it's not a real bad letter usually on the first one. So speaking of the IRS, I think I'm going to give a little prelude to what I wanted to talk about. And this isn't directly related to the IRS exactly. It's related to the income tax 16th Amendment that was supposedly passed. And I think I brought, brought something printed out here just to refer this. But it's a book that I read a long time ago. And let me see what this thing says. There it is. So I read this book a long time ago, and this is kind of a kind of a synopsis. But I'm going to tell you what I remember of the book. The 16th Amendment had been sent out in 1909 to the state governors. Now remember, in order to make an amendment to the Constitution, it has to be ratified by two-thirds of the state legislatures. That was the protection that the Constitution put in against the Constitution getting changed, uh, you know, unnecessarily or, you know, you can't change it with a 51% majority. You have to have two-thirds. Oh, I'm sorry. They're saying three-fourths. Oh, okay. That's even better. Yeah, I I haven't read that lately. It looks like it is three-fourths. So it says right here, the 16th Amendment had been sent out in 1909 to the state governors for ratification by the state legislatures after having been passed by Congress. There were 48 states at that time, and three-fourths or 36 of them were required to give their approval in order for it to be ratified. The process took almost the whole term of the Taft administration from 09 to 13. Knox had received responses from 42 states when he declared the 16th Amendment ratified on February 25th, hey, that's my birthday, 1913, just a few days before leaving office to make way for the administration of Woodrow Wilson. That's Secretary of State Philander Knox. I'll get back to this right after this break. Thanks for listening to Business Buzz. I'll be right back. 
This is Pause to Pray, a chance to stop down each day from the daily noise of life and pray for our country's leaders. Today we pray for Ann Ganser. She's the Deputy Assistant Secretary for Nonproliferation Policy at the Department of State. Her office works to maintain and promote peaceful nuclear cooperation, safety, and the physical protection of nuclear materials and facilities. 2 Timothy 4.18 reminds us of the safety God provides us. The Lord will rescue me from every evil attack and will bring me safely to his heavenly kingdom. To him be glory forever and ever. Amen. Right now with this in mind, let's pray. Dear God, we ask you to guide Ann Ganser as she works towards strength and safety for our country. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Pause to Pray is a service of this station and the Presidential Prayer Team. This is an important election year in your state and all across the country. And we are joining together to pray the vote. Details at pausetopray.org. You might have claimed to be a follower of the Lord. You might really be one of His. But a lot of us have somehow lost the priority of worship along the way. Somehow something else took the place, the central place of our Lord Jesus in our hearts. David Hockey shares how to put Jesus back on the throne. This week on Hope for Today. Tune in for Hope for Today, weekdays at 8 a.m. here on KKXX. Welcome back to Business Buzz. I'm Harold Littlejohn, CPA. On another nice spring Chico day, getting warm. I believe the Silver Dollar Fair made it this year without any rain falling on it, which kind of usually happens. So I'm happy for them if they made money. I know they made some off of me on Saturday, but I enjoyed it. So this is really interesting. If you've never heard of this Bill Benson study, there's a book called The Law That Never Was. So here's where we're at. I'm going to read some more of this. This is really good. So Knox, Secretary of State, received 42 states when he declared it ratified. Knox acknowledged four of those states, Utah, Connecticut, Rhode Island, and New Hampshire, had rejected it, and he counted 38 states as having approved it. We will now examine some of the key evidence Bill Benson found regarding the approval of the amendment in many of those states. Okay, so the first one discussed is Kentucky. In Kentucky, the legislature acted on the amendment without even having received it from the governor. Uh, the governor of each state was to transmit the proposed amendment to the state legislature. The version of the, listen to this, I can't believe this. Well, I do believe it. The version of the amendment that the Kentucky legislature made up and acted upon omitted the words on income from the text, so they weren't even voting on an income tax. When they straightened that out with the help of the governor, the Kentucky Senate rejected the amendment, yet Philander Knox counted Kentucky as approving it. Now think about it. I mean, right now we barely can get any real news to people other than, you know, the mainstream junk. Could you imagine what that was like in 1913? I mean, the only news anyone got was from a set of newspapers probably owned by four or five rich guys that worked together. Uh, there was no TV and no radio. I mean, could you imagine the limited amount of information anybody would have had? Okay, so Kentucky didn't really approve it. So now that brings us down to 37. So in Oklahoma, the legislature changed the wording of the amendment so that its meaning was virtually the opposite of what was intended by Congress. And this was the version they sent back to Knox. Yet Knox counted Oklahoma as approving it, despite a memo from his chief legal counselor, Council Reuben Clark, that states were not allowed to change it in any way. Attorneys who have studied the subject have agreed that Kentucky and Oklahoma should not have been counted as approvals by Philander Knox, and moreover, if any state could be shown to have violated its own state constitution or laws in its approval process, then that state's approval would have to be thrown out. That gets us past the presumptive conclusion argument, which says that the actions of an executive official cannot be adjudged by a court and it admits that Knox could be wrong. If we subtract Kentucky and Oklahoma from the 38 approvals above, the count of valid approvals falls to 36, 
the exact number needed for ratification. If any more states can be shown to have had invalid approvals, the 16th Amendment must be regarded as null and void. The state constitution of Tennessee prohibited the state legislature from acting on any proposed amendment to the U.S. Constitution sent by Congress until after the next election of state legislators. The intent, of course, is to give the proposed amendment a chance to become an issue in the state legislative elections so that the people can have a voice in determining the outcome. Well, that does sound like a, that sounds like a smart idea. It also provides a cooling-off period to reduce the tendency to approve an idea just because it happens to be the moment's trend. You've probably already guessed that the Tennessee legislature did not hold off on voting for the amendment until the next election, and you'd be right, they didn't. Hence, they acted upon it illegally before they were authorized to do so. They also violated their own state constitution by failing to read the resolution on three different days, as prescribed by Article to Section 18. These state constitutional violations make their approval of the amendment null and void. Their approval is and was invalid, and it brings the number of approving states down to 35, one less than required for ratification. Texas and Louisiana violated provisions in their state constitutions prohibiting the legislatures from empowering the federal government with any additional taxing authority. Now the number is down to 33. Twelve other states besides Tennessee violated provisions in their constitutions requiring that a bill be read on three different days before voting on it. This is not a trivial requirement. It allows for a cooling-off period. It enables members who may be absent one day to be present on another. It allows for a better familiarity with and understanding of the measure under consideration since some members may not always read a bill or resolution before voting on it, believe it or not. States violating this procedure were Mississippi, Ohio, Arkansas, Minnesota, New Mexico, West Virginia, Indiana, Nevada, North Carolina, North Dakota, Colorado, and Illinois. Now the number is reduced to 21 states legally ratifying the amendment. When Secretary Knox transmitted the proposed amendment to the states, official certified and sealed copies were sent. Likewise, when state results were returned to Knox, it was required that the documents, including the resolution that was actually approved, be properly certified, signed, and sealed by the appropriate officials. There is no more than any ordinary citizen has to do in filing any legal document so that its authenticity is assured. Otherwise, it is not acceptable and is meaningless. How much more important it is to authenticate a constitutional amendment? Yet a number of states did not do this, returning uncertified, unsigned, and or unsealed copies and did not rectify their negligence even after being reminded and warned by Knox. The most egregious offenders were Ohio, California, Arkansas, Mississippi, and Minnesota, which did not send any copy at all, so Knox could not have known what they even voted on. Since four of these states were already disqualified above, California is now subtracted from the list of valid approvals, reducing it to 20. These last five states, along with Kentucky and Oklahoma, have particularly strong implications with regard to the fraud charge against Knox in that he cannot be excused for not knowing they shouldn't have been counted. Why was he in such a hurry? Why did he not demand that they send proper documentation? They never did. Further review would make the list dwindle down much more, but with the number down to 20, 16 fewer than required, this is a suitable place to rest without getting into the matter of several states whose constitutions limited the taxing authority of their legislatures, which could not give to the federal government authority they did not have. So I'm going to just fill out a little bit more on this. It's a very interesting topic. Uh, it's uh, The book's probably hard to find. It's called The Law That Never Was. The author is Bill Benson. And here's what I remember when I read the actual book. This was a long time ago. Of course, being a tax person, I'm particularly interested in income tax history. Plus, I was the professor of uh, individual income taxation at Cal Northern School of Law for about 16 years, 16 or 17, and of course I have to educate future attorneys about the individual income tax, so I'm supposed to learn these things. Bottom line is when Bill Benson, he got a bunch of donors to donate money to him to do this study, he traveled to every state legislature library in the country 
on all 48 of those anyway. Wouldn't have to go to Hawaii and Alaska, obviously. So he traveled to every one of the state capitals. He got certified copies of everything that was proven in his book, which is what was summarized in what I just read. And to top it off, he sent a certified copy of the entire stack of everything he found to every representative, every senator, every federal judge, and probably the president. I don't remember when he wrote this book. I think it was probably in the 70s, maybe the early 80s. And so every single officer of the United States government who enforces the income tax is on notice with certified copies that the amendment should never have been ratified. So what, what do you think of that? What is that? How does that make you feel? We're living under these laws that it turns out were not done properly. And of course, this, that theory plays all the way up till the present day, if you catch my drift, where we have problems where state legislatures weren't following their own rules for uh, things that have been happening in the last couple of years. And we're going to be probably hearing a lot about that over the next few months, I'm guessing. I just wanted to share that because if an amendment to the Constitution, which is one of the biggest things that can happen, can be faked, then what else has been faked? I'm Harold Littlejohn, CPA. Thanks for listening to Business Buzz. Stay tuned. I'll be right back. Your dining room can be a place of gathering, love, and fellowship. On the next Focus on the Family, Bree McCoy encourages you to discover the power of a sit-down meal and opening your home to guests. From neighbors to the broken, you'll be inspired to reach out and invite people into your home. Next time on Focus on the Family with Jim Daly. Wednesday on Truth For Life, Alistair Begg looks at how an eternal perspective completely transforms the way we view the culture in which we live. We use the things of the world, but not as those engrossed by them. That is the change which Jesus makes. It's a whole new perspective Wednesday on Truth For Life with Alistair Begg. Hi, we're the Goo Goo Dolls. We're fortunate that our daughters have what they need to grow and learn. But that isn't the case for nearly 13 million kids in the U.S. that struggle with hunger. Childhood hunger is a heartbreaking reality that Feeding America is working to change. Each year, the Feeding America network of food banks rescues billions of pounds of good food that would have gone to waste and provides it to families and children in need. You can help kids in need in your community by visiting feedingamerica.org. Brought to you by Feeding America and the Ad Council. I wasn't prepared to be a caregiver to mom. I had no idea how hard it would be and what I would need to know. Things I never thought of, like how to improve her mood and ways for me to stay positive. Luckily, I found the Caregiving Resource Center from AARP. It had articles about the basics, but also information about the hurdles I was facing. Caregiving Resource Center at aarp.org caregiving. Articles, tips, and tools to help you both care for your loved one and care for yourself. Brought to you by AARP and the Ad Council. Welcome back to Business Buzz. I'm Harold Littlejohn, CPA. Glad you can spend a little bit of your busy day with me. I try to educate and inform, hopefully entertain. Anyway, the 16th Amendment is crazy. I wonder how many other amendments were not really done right. Who knows? So that's interesting. I think, I think everybody should read more about that. I think it's very interesting. So how about uh, business, local business? How about the business of cleaning up Chico? I've got an article here. Police hand out notices to trailers at Chico's alternate homeless site. Let's see what this is about. 
Chico opened up its only alternate homeless campsite at the corner of Eaton and Cohasset Road nine days ago. Homeless people have been staying there ever since. That must be right near the airport. I, I don't drive down there very often. I haven't seen it. Technically, only tent camping is allowed, but there are two trailers and three cars. Hmm. Interesting. Well, I'm not sure this is really, I guess it's about business. I know there's some downtown businesses that weren't very happy with the tent tent situation. Uh, I have a lot of mixed mixed feelings about the homeless problem and how to deal with it, but there's just a certain there's a certain minimum consideration that needs to be given to people with no resources. But there's also a certain maximum, and that's just all I'll say. There's there's got to be a certain way to work out something in the middle that, you know, isn't inhumane. But honestly, you can't. You just can't let that grow and grow and grow. In my opinion, just my opinion. I mean. If maybe some billionaires would like to step up and, you know, build a big subdivision and put all the homeless in there. I wouldn't I wouldn't complain if somebody wanted to do that, but I don't see the billionaires stepping up from what I've seen. Not sure. So Ah, there's all kinds of stuff here. Oh, hey, my favorite voting machine companies back in the news. I talked about them a few weeks ago. So it says fake news CNN on Saturday of the holiday weekend admitted that the Dominion software has flaws that can be exploited. And then this article says, uh, then why are we using them? Are we going to start pretending Democrats don't cheat? Anyway, that's my favorite voting machine company. I don't own stock in it. I wouldn't feel good owning stock in that. Even if you, even if you could make money with it, it, it wouldn't be, it wouldn't be a, wouldn't be clean money. Let's see what else did I bring today? I got, I got something else here that's entertaining. Got to find it. Oh yeah, the how about the business of social media? Twitter. Twitter's being bought. And uh the point is is that in Twitter's SEC filings where they have to file their quarterly statements and details uh, with the government for everybody to view. They claimed that less than 5% of all the Twitter accounts were fake, or they call them bots. And uh, so when the person who bought Twitter relied on the SEC filings, in order to close the deal, he's going to have to verify that 95% or more of the accounts are real people and not bots or fake accounts. And so this article here posted on uh, it's ussanews.com, May 30th. There's a new study conducted by cybersecurity firm CHEQ found that nearly 12% of all Twitter traffic is derived from bots with CHEQ CEO noting that the number could be significantly higher. Twitter self-reported bots as consisting of less than 5% of its traffic during evaluation early this year. Um, following African-American tech billionaire Iron Man Elon Musk's offer to buy the platform. In a statement released on Monday, check CHEQ cast doubt on Twitter's favorable claims about itself 
pertaining to AI accounts. That means artificial intelligence accounts, bots, fake, fake accounts. Global cybersecurity company Check released new data today casting light on Twitter's bot numbers, the press release stated. The company analyzed 5.21 million website visits originating from Twitter using over 2,000 cybersecurity tests to determine each user's authenticity. The study found that 11.71% of all visits were driven by bots or fake users, including spam bots, scrapers, botnets, click farms, and automation tools, as well as other forms of fake, fraudulent, and non-human traffic. The data suggests that Twitter's bot problem is probably larger than 5%, said Guy Titunovich, founder and CEO of Check. Our study looked into users who came from Twitter to other websites. But if you consider that many bots don't click through to other sites and only stay on Twitter, then it seems very likely that bot traffic inside the platform itself could be significantly higher than 12%. Ultimately, we're living in the era of the fake web where bots, malicious users, and automation tools make up a large portion of all web traffic and this data supports what we're seeing out there. SparkToro, a software company that roots out fake bot accounts, known as spam bots from social media companies, found that nearly half of Joe Biden's 22.2 million Twitter followers are not real humans earlier this month. So that's interesting. So if... um. The purchase of that company then would be based on the 5% figure, and if it gets proven that it's 12% or more fake, then number one, I'm sure that would enable the buyer to back out of the deal. And number two, what does that say for all the advertisers and people who have spent money advertising on Twitter after being told 95% of the accounts are live human beings, but it might turn out that only 88% or less are live human beings. Are they going to owe refunds to the advertisers? These are the kind of things you have to think about if if there's a, a lot of fake accounts, which is um, very interesting. Anyway, I brought quite a few things, but I'm just going to do a little reading in the next segment because, to be honest, it's a it's another long day at the old income tax office, and I'm kind of tired, and I have to go back and work late to catch things up. So after my pleasant visit here at KKXX to talk with you guys, I have to go back to work, which is, it's fine. It's fun. It's enjoyable. It's enjoyable when I can figure out a way to save somebody some tax, legally, of course. And that's kind of what I do it for. I mean, I do it to, I do it to make a living, but in the meantime, I enjoy being able to save some people tax and uh, make sure they're not overpaying. I especially enjoy fixing a tax that somebody might have done incorrectly and getting them back some money, I, I enjoy that. I, I did one of those the other day, and it was a four hundred and forty dollar refund they were entitled to with the amended, and that stemmed from a two thousand dollar deduction that they had totally missed for tuition that they had paid during twenty twenty, and they're in a twenty two percent tax bracket. So, two thousand times twenty two percent is four hundred and forty dollars. So. That's $440 more than they had before, and I was, I was happy to do that one. That's probably not the biggest one I've ever done from a, just from a random correction, but it felt good to see a taxpayer get back some money that they didn't know they had coming, for, coming uh, prior to that. So I was pretty happy about that. If their income hadn't have been so high, they would have actually gotten about $2,000 back instead of 440 But when their income was too high, the credit for tuition 
just turns into a deduction of $2,000. It's not that big of a deal. But 440 bucks, hey, that'll fill up a gas tank or two, right? How about the business of uh, selling gas? I've noticed that even the basic stations that were sort of middle of the road are now at $6 a gallon for the unleaded. And they were just a week ago, they were like five fifty nine, five forty nine. So I think we've had another 10% increase in about a week, which translates to a increase in a year. Ouch. And if you compound it, probably looking at 700%. So if things keep going this way, gas is going to be 40 bucks a gallon in a year. I'm not saying it is going to be, but who would have believed, you know, four months ago that it was going to be six? I wouldn't have. I, I believe it'd go up to maybe four. But not six. I'm Harold Littlejohn, CPA. Stay tuned to Business Buzz. We're going to have some fun reading in just a minute or two. I'll be right back. From the Pacific Justice Institute, this is The Legal Edge. Defending your rights as a Christian, a parent, and a citizen. Here's Brad Vegas. Anti-critical race theory school board candidates won nearly every election in Texas's largest counties. This is a huge step, folks, in the right direction to reclaim public schools from dangerous ideologies being taught. Pacific Justice Institute's work extends beyond legal representation and advice. Through our pastor liaison program, we educate Christians on the importance of civic stewardship through efforts such as running for state, local, and school board elections to advocate for policies that protect parental rights and religious freedom. Download PJI's free resource, 12 Practical Ways to Civic Stewardship at PJI.org. PJI provides legal representation without charge. Get exclusive email updates by registering for The Legal Insider at PJI.org. Long-range missile reportedly fired this morning by Iran. 47,000 acres burned. The news lets you know what's going on in the world. But a few things you should know about most news outlets. They don't make money if they don't get good ratings. And they all know that bad news gets good ratings. A violent terror attack outside the American So the more they inflate the bad news, the more gripping a story can seem. Turn off all that bad news and tune in here. We have a positive approach to life and always good news. Listen here. You found Life Radio, KKXX, AM and FM. Welcome back to Business Buzz. I'm Harold Littlejohn, CPA. And I did want to... There's another real mixed emotion topic for me when Memorial Day comes because all the people who passed away in the services, it's it's like the ultimate sacrifice. The problem I have is that why did... Why did they have to die? And that's uh, sort of the point of this article. Why did they have to die? And uh, this article is called, it's from donaldjeffries.substack.com. And it's called, Thank You for Your Servitude. It says, Hapless Chess Pieces versus Genuine Heroes. It says, I don't want to spoil anyone's Memorial Day. To those who have lost loved ones in uniform, your pain and tragedy is real and you have my sympathy. I prefer the view that my friend Cindy Sheehan holds. She lost a young son in our senseless Middle East misadventures. They couldn't assuage her with medals and patriotic rhetoric. Now this is this author talking. This isn't me. In my view, the last justified war that America Americans America participated in was the War of 1812. 
Our shores were invaded, and we were directly attacked. That was the only war of defense America has ever fought. I'm no pacifist. We all have the right to defend ourselves, and that includes the country itself. Some of you might respond, hey, what about Pearl Harbor? What about those dirty, sneaky, rotten Japanese? Please read my book, Crimes and Cover-Ups in American Politics, 1776 to 1963, for a detailed examination of FDR's foreknowledge of the event. He might as well have been flying a plane himself. Those who fought for independence against the Redcoats and those who actually defended the homeland during the War of 1812 were heroes in my estimation. But I don't get this labeling of anyone who dies in combat as a hero. None of the nearly million young Americans who lost their lives in Abraham Lincoln's senseless internal conflict were heroic. Lincoln instituted an unconstitutional draft, so these boys were forced to fight. Unless they had money, of course. There was the whole rich man's exemption thing. No one who died at Gettysburg or Antietam was wealthy. Did the youngsters killed in the Spanish-American War precipitated by the first modern false flag die for any reason whatsoever? How about those who occupied and committed atrocities in the Philippines or Haiti? I'll have a lot to say about all that in the upcoming Hidden History 3, more from the American memory hole. By the way, I'm going to start reading this guy's books. He's, I like his style. It says, World War I, don't make me laugh. Even the court historians can't come up with a reason for that pointless slaughter. But lots of bankers and one percenters increase their fortunes from it, as the great Smedley Butler pointed out. There's a book by a guy named Smedley Butler called War is a Racket. And uh, it's a very eye-opening opening deal. Woodrow Wilson brought back John Adams' unconstitutional sedition laws, throwing lots of World War I protesters into prison. When Eugene Debs and others challenged this legally, the Supreme Court upheld Wilson. And that's where that whole yelling fire in a crowded theater asterisk on free speech came from. Vaunted liberal Oliver Wendell Holmes made up the expression to defend the imprisonment of war protesters. So protesting a senseless war is yelling fire in a crowded theater. Got it. By World War II, Americans had learned their lesson. They dutifully planted their victory gardens, bought their bonds, became air raid wardens, and idolized the greatest generation soldiers like no others before. Uncle Sam wants you. Again, read my book for just a sampling of the atrocities committed by these heroes on the Germans and the Japanese. That doesn't mean that the Germans and the Japanese didn't commit atrocities on them. It means that non-defensive wars are full of horrific criminal behaviors on all sides. Anyway, I thought that was really interesting. So it says, um, anyway, it was just an interesting article, but I always think about that on Memorial Day because I feel sorry for people who get hurt, but I really feel sorry for people who in the past had been drafted and then got hurt and killed. I do remember when I worked in Oakland, uh, I was too young. Uh, the Vietnam War ended when I turned 17, so I wasn't possibly in the draft. But I remember some clients of my dad. My father was an accountant in Oakland. I worked for him, and uh, I remember some sons that were maybe 10 years older than me of my dad's clients that I was talking to, and he said, yep. He said, I lived in a crummy neighborhood in Oakland and, uh, you know, mostly a minority neighborhoods, and uh, he said everyone in the whole neighborhood got drafted. There was hardly anybody missed. So, you know, that, that just, I know the whole thing isn't fair. I totally, totally object to the draft unless it was a, like this guy's saying, if it was a, defensive war with uh, invasions of the country, that's totally different. But to be drafted to go fight some rich banker's war in the Middle East for the oil or whatever else they're doing over there, I mean, it's so, the whole thing's so convoluted. I wouldn't bother, I wouldn't bother reading for 20 hours to learn why Iran is doing this or why Iraq had to be invaded. I wouldn't even bother wasting my time reading that junk because they'll say whatever they want to say in these books. But all I know is, uh, you know, American citizens really have no right 
to be fighting foreign wars uh, that don't directly affect us. And that's just my opinion. But anyway, it's called Thank You for Your Servitude, and it's a pretty interesting article no matter, no matter how you feel about it. But that's how I feel about it. I just feel really sorry for the people who got... Well, I, I remember, I probably mentioned this before, but my father was sort of a veteran of World War II. He was at the, in the occupation in Nagasaki. He was too young to really fight in the war, but he did join up as an ROTC guy right after the war ended. And to make a long story short... I turned him onto a book. He died about 11 years ago. I probably gave him this book 20 years ago. Uh, the name of the book um, honestly just escapes me right at the moment. But it was all about the true nature of the business dealings of us along with Germany, uh, the oil companies that made sure Hitler had plenty of plenty of uh, petrol uh, gas for his planes and everything. Um, and I gave my dad that book to read, and I visited him. I used to go down to work for him every week or so, so I visited him a week later. And I said, hey, did you, did you check that book out? And he's like, he told me, Harold, I can't read it. Because he grew up believing that the World War II was a great cause that was worth fighting we needed to do it. We needed to sacrifice, you know, 500,000 young men, blah, blah, blah. And he picked up that book for a chapter or two, and he put it down, and he said, Harold, I can't read it. So that, that, that told me everything I needed to know. And at least I, at least I was able to educate him. It's kind of like my friends who I've had two people who are friends who have gone and seen Paul McCartney concerts and they just rave and rave how great it was. And I know it was because I've seen him on video and I know he's doing a great job even in his 70s. But the problem is they've never read about the probable death of Paul McCartney in 1966 and his replacement, uh, William Shepard. And uh, it's kind of like my dad reading about World War II I mean, I was a huge Beatle fan all when I was a kid and, and growing up. But I'm also realistic, and I've read so many facts about the death of Paul McCartney that I can't ignore it. And I honestly doubt that the guy who's been Paul McCartney for the last 56 years, I doubt if it's really the original Paul McCartney but I really don't have the heart to debate it with my friends who saw Paul McCartney live. They probably paid a couple thousand bucks to, to see him. I just don't have the heart to turn them on to that book. It would probably just depress them. That's kind of the double-edged sword of research and reading. It's interesting to learn this stuff, but it's also pretty depressing to learn it too when you realize that the whole system for the last 70 years or 60 or 70 years has been completely rigged and overtaken by people who aren't, aren't looking out for us at all. And all the money's been stolen. We're a debtor nation. It's kind of depressing if you let it be. I just kind of treat it as a fun hobby to research and read. So I'm just going to spend the last couple of minutes with my favorite book, The Course in Miracles, A Course in Miracles. And it's uh, chapter 13, uh, section 5, called The Two Emotions. I have said you have but two emotions, love and fear. One is changeless but continually exchanged, being offered by the eternal to the eternal. In this exchange it is intended, for it increases as it is given. The other has many forms, for the content of individual illusions differs greatly. Yet they have one thing in common. They are all insane. They are made of sights that are not seen and sounds that are not heard. They make up a private world that cannot be shared, for they are meaningful only to their maker, and so they have no meaning at all. In this world their maker moves alone, for only he perceives them. So if you aren't quite picking up on this yet, I'll read a little more, but the maker is you. 
Each one peoples his world with figures from his individual past, and it is because of this that private worlds do differ. Yet the figures that he sees were never real, for they are made up only of his reactions to his brothers, and do not include their reactions to him. Therefore he does not see he made them, and that they are not whole. For these figures have no witnesses, being perceived in one separate mind only. It is through these strange and shadowy figures that the insane relate to their insane world, for they see only those who remind them of these images, and it is to them that they relate. Thus do they communicate with those who are not there, and it is they who answer them, and no one hears their answer save him who called upon them, and he alone believes they answered him. Projection makes perception, and you cannot see beyond it. Again and again have you attacked your brother, because you saw in him a shadow figure in your private world. And thus it is you must attack yourself first, for what you attack is not in others. Its only reality is in your own mind, and by attacking others, you are literally attacking what is not there. That's interesting. The delusional can be very destructive, for they do not recognize they have condemned themselves. They do not wish to die, yet they will not let condemnation go. And so they separate into their private worlds where everything is disordered and where what is within appears to be without. Yet what is within they do not see, for the reality of their brothers they cannot recognize. You have but two emotions, yet in your private world you react to each of them as though it were the other. For love cannot abide in a world apart, where when it comes it is not recognized. If you see your own hatred as your brother, you are not seeing him. Everyone draws nigh unto what he loves and recoils from what he fears, and you react with fear to love and draw away from it. Yet fear attracts you, and believing it is love, you call it to yourself. Your private world is filled with figures of fear, you have invited into it, and all the love your brothers offer you, you do not see. As you look with open eyes upon your world, it must occur to you that you have withdrawn into insanity. You see what is not there, and you hear what makes no sound. Your manifestations of emotions are the opposite of what the emotions are. You communicate with no one, and you are as isolated from reality as if you were alone in all the universe. In your madness, you overlook reality completely, and you see only your own split mind everywhere you look. God calls you and you do not hear, for you are preoccupied with your own voice. And the vision of Christ is not in your sight, for you look upon yourself alone. I enjoy reading that every once in a while. And one one thing about it is the, the point of that book is peace of mind, so there's no other real goal. So if that makes you feel better, I'm glad. If it doesn't, well, sorry. I'm Harold Littlejohn, CPA. Thanks for listening to Business Buzz. I'll talk with you next time. KKXX, Paradise. K280GL. Chico and K283AR Chico, Yuba City, Marysville. News this hour from townhall.com. I'm Jason Walker. Democrats and Republicans alike still looking for common ground on guns in response to last week's deadly school shooting in Texas. More on the story from correspondent Bob Agnew. Away from Washington for the Memorial Day break, a handful of Democrat and Republican senators were planning to use a Zoom call to get the ball rolling on bipartisan gun talks. Democrats are pushing hard for mandatory red flag laws that would allow states to identify potential shooters ahead of time. They also want expanded background checks for gun buyers. Republicans, led in these talks by Texas Senator John Cornyn, fear both Democrat measures could easily be politicized and used to strip away the constitutional constitutional rights of law-abiding gun owners. Bob Agner reporting. One week after the gunman hit in that Texas grade school and started shooting, the first of 21 funerals began Tuesday. Amari Joe Garza and Mady Rodriguez 
Both had hundreds at their funerals. Also at townhall.com, Hurricane Agatha making history as the strongest storm recorded yet to come ashore in the month of May during the Eastern Pacific hurricane season. National Hurricane Center Specialist Daniel Brown. Since that time, it has uh, weakened while moving further inland over uh, southeastern Mexico, and it has brought a swath of very heavy rainfall. It brought some uh, storm surge and high winds at the coast, and then also uh, damaging winds uh, near uh, and just to the east of where it made landfall. In the meantime, Agatha now has been downgraded to a tropical depression. Huge fire in a chemical company just southwest of downtown Omaha, forcing nearby residents to evacuate. So far, there have been no reports of any injuries. More on these stories at townhall.com. My brother-in-law died suddenly, and now my sister and her kids have to sell their home. That's why I told my husband we could not put off getting life insurance any longer. An agent offered us a 10-year, $500,000 policy for nearly $50 a month. Then we called SelectQuote. SelectQuote found us identical coverage for only $19 a month, a savings of $369 a year. Whether you need a $500,000 policy or a $5 million policy, SelectQuote could save you more than 50% on term life insurance. For your free quote, call SelectQuote at 1-800-690-4040. That's 1-800-690-4040. Or go to SelectQuote.com. 1-800-690-4040. That's 1-800-690-4040. SelectQuote. We shop. You save. Full details on example policies at selectquote.com slash commercials. Millions of children in the United States are said